now to the third part of the little prophecy of Micah. And Micah commences by seeking their attention. And I want you to try and get into your mind's eye, men and women, the very picture that is portrayed uh, right throughout this chapter, most part of it anyway, and that is of a courtroom. And if you like, it's Micah's courtroom. And there is the defendant and there is the opposition and there are the arguments that are brought. And it's like if you were ever in a courtroom in the particular case that you're involved in, there's the cry uh, that you uh, now can come into the courtroom and to commence, see the commencement of the hearing. And that's a wee bit like the start here. Hear ye now what the Lord saith. And as I've said, what follows is likened to a courtroom and a case. The formal indictment is tabled. It is the Lord versus the people. And the charge on the part of the Lord is that they had failed to keep their covenant relationships that the Lord had made with the nation at Horeb in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Treaties, of course, and agreements between empires and their people in those days forbid behavior that would be construed as rebellious or if they were too friendly uh, with the uh, other powers. And you know the analogy holds good for the empires would often have sent out messengers to convey orders to the people. And so the Lord, who was their sovereign God, he sent out the messengers. His messengers were his prophets. And those prophets reminded the people of his provision for them and yet what he would do for them even in the future. If a country failed their emperor, usually before dispatching the troops to straighten them out, he would send a messenger. A messenger who charged them and with the desire that the people would see their wrong and they would return, they would repent, they would show loyalty and they would uh, give and render obedience. And that's how the words of chapter 6 and verse 8 that we'll come to even in a moment or two could be looked upon. The object of the covenant was to recall them to loyalty to God and to the king's favour. Micah has been delegated by the Lord to act as the Lord's spokesman. He's maybe you would say the barrister in the courtroom. The witnesses are solemnly called as they would be in any case. Micah initiates proceedings before the mountains and the hills, verse 1. You see, in those days, witnesses were needed in the making of any covenant. And in the heathen cultures, they were usually, normally, the gods and their, their goddesses. But of course, with Israel, that wasn't the case. And so they had no other option but to call heaven and earth as their witnesses. And that's why he speaks about the, the mountains and the hills. The foundations of the earth. Verse 2. Have been in existence for a long time. So that they could bear witness to what God had required in his covenant. And how the people had responded. The witnesses are brought. There before the mountains, the foundations of the earth, the hills. And the Lord was putting in the formal complaint against the people, the ones that should have been loyal. And what you have as the court case envelops from verse 3 is the accusation. Let me read it to you. All my people 
What have I done unto thee, and wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. And the Lord is in the stand. And Micah directly quotes the Lord addressing the people. They're my people, he says. He underlines the bond that there was between them. It's a covenant. I don't want you to think of that covenant in terms of some business arrangement or business relationship, but rather think of it in the terms of a marriage bond between two parties. But it's remarkable in that God doesn't enumerate all that Israel had done. All her unfaithfulness. But rather what he does, instead of listing their sins, he focuses on what he had done for them. But their behavior did not seem to appreciate that relationship. Nor all that God had done for them as a nation. O my people, what have I done unto thee? Was there any charge that they could level against the Lord that would justify their rebellious attitude, that would justify their sin and their iniquity? And then there's the clue as to what the attitude of Israel had been. It's found in the question, and wherein have I wearied thee? That's what they're leveling against the Lord. You're wearied us. Wherein have I wearied thee? Israel must have felt wearied by the relationship. They were tired of the demands and the restrictions that they felt were being placed on them. They had no longer any joy. They found the Lord to be tiresome and to be tedious. And the sad thing, men and women, if I can just halt for a moment in our proceedings... The sad thing, there's a sense, you know, in which we could apply that same charge against many of God's people today. They who had a joy about them. They who had a zeal in serving the Lord. They were desirous to be separated. They were desirous to be different. No matter what others thought about them just just a few years back. Now it seems they're weary. They don't have the same zeal. Not the same obedience to what God and his word says. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to be different. They rather desire to blend in. Be conditioned to what the world is about. To live as close to that line as they can. And you know, we can but ask what the Lord says through Micah. At the end of verse 3, testify against me. In other words, he's saying, answer me. If this is the manner in which you're thinking, then back it up now with evidence. They were to prove what they were alleging. It puts the people, of course, on the defensive. God then reminds them of what he had done. You answer me. You answer me why I wearied thee. Why have you leveled that charge against me? 
because he says, I brought thee out of the land of Egypt. I've redeemed thee out of the house of servants. He redeemed them from the servitude. He redeemed them from the slavery. He purchased them by the blood of the Passover lamb. Far from causing them to be weary, he released them. He released them from the bondage that they were under. And he paid the redemption price that was needed. What a picture of God's salvation, of course, is found therein. What had happened in their past was not to be written off as some ancient history. It was to be praised as the basis for their present privileges. God had brought them out of Egypt as a, as a, a little nation. He had redeemed them with blood. And he had been honourable to his word, for he had brought them right in to their promised land, as he had said. What else? He also sent them leaders. And what quality there was in those, as he speaks of them in verse 4, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and, and Miriam. I'm sure, I'm sure if you haven't got anything else through our studies in the life of Moses, I'm sure that like me you've seen that Moses was a, a leader of quality. He was one of the best. And maybe by mentioning these by name he exposes or at least asks the question why they still weren't blessed with outstanding leaders. They were then to remember not only what God had done for them in bringing them out and giving them leaders, but the occasions of the Lord's provision, the time when they frustrated the plans of Barak through Balaam. And you remember how the king wanted Israel to be cursed, and Balaam couldn't curse them. Instead, he blessed them. And God protected them from their adversaries while they desired them to be cursed. They instead were blessed. And you know they're also preserved. From He mentions from Shittim to Gilgal. What's the significance in that? Well they have camped in Shittim. Shittim was the last place on east of the Jordan. Gilgal was the first place of encampment on the west of the Jordan. And God had brought them right across the Jordan. Just as he had brought them out of Egypt via the Red Sea. Just recount how Joshua puts it. In Joshua chapter 4, the words of verse 23. By this time Moses has gone to glory. Joshua is a new leader. But he doesn't forget what the Lord had done for them. Verse 23 of chapter 4. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you. Until you were passed over. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. Which he dried up from before us until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. Joshua just stopped and he reminded them what God had done for them. And he says he did that, that all the world might know the hand of the Lord is mighty. All those nations about you. More of what God had done could have been recorded. But the same response was required in the time of Micah. Because we read at the end of the words of verse 5 that ye may know the righteousness of the Lord. 
Their response was to be a recognition of all that he had done for them. And if we just pause, men and women, can we not just say really what we're singing about earlier on? We love him because he first loved us. We acknowledge that love. We acknowledge he's redeemed us with precious blood. We acknowledge that he's lifted us out of the Mary clay and brought us and given us liberty. For whom the Lord sets free shall be free indeed. The accusation, there's a typical response now. Micah presents the sort of typical response that would have been given by the regular Israelite. It's unlikely there would have been any acknowledgement of guilt. I think you understand that when you come to the closing verses of the chapter because it still speaks about judgment. There's no recognition of their guilt. Rather they would have responded by being surprised and even bewildered at what was the charge laid against them. If the Lord had been asking them questions as he has, maybe they would in reply ask their own. To paraphrase it, what more could we have done to show our loyalty? Look at the words of verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? This is not the Lord speaking now. This is now Micah giving a typical typical response. They're now, as it were, he's in the dock and, and he's taking the stand. And here's what they would have said. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with cows of a year old? Their questions really amount to a protestation. Protestation. They're protesting. They would go to any lengths to show their loyalty and their devotion to the Lord. And so they would imply that any such charges against them was unjust. By doing so, they were merely showing their ignorance and the externals of their religion. They claim... Their loyalty seek to worship him in the holy place. They're a worshiper of the covenant God. And furthermore, that same worshiper claims that when they bow down before the exalted God, that they don't come empty-handed. And so the question is asked, would they bring the burnt offerings? Not just any offering. They mentioned the burnt offering because the burnt offering was the most costly. Some of the other offerings, they would have gleaned something from it. But the burnt offering was entirely given over to God. And of course the calves of a year old, as any farmer will know, it's obviously of more value because that calf has been fattened. That calf has been fed. It's not a calf of six or seven days old which could be offered too as a year old now is that what the Lord wants us to do the worshipper was protesting their willingness to present to God the most costly type of offering and if it wasn't quality that was needed then what about quantity verse 7 will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rounds or with ten thousand of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is it quantity the Lord wanted? 
We'll bring the thousands of rams. And in the most extreme rhetorical scenario, was it the offering of their firstborn that the Lord was looking? I don't believe that's a reference to the pagan cultures or sacrifices, the offerings made to, to Moloch, etc., that you read about. There may be a reference instead in that to Abraham. Because Abraham was tested by God to give his firstborn, to give his only son Isaac. In other words, they were showing that they were as willing as Abraham was, their forefather, in showing their faith in God. And it all amounted to them seeing nothing wrong on their side of the covenant promise. They worshipped the Lord. They bowed down before the Lord. They brought their offerings. They didn't come empty-handed. And they were willing to give content. And they were willing to give quantity. Even the firstborn if need be. And men and women, the response is typical also of many today. You know, people will do and they will give externally just to go through the motions. I'm a worshiper. I go to the house of God. I give unto the Lord. When the Lord turns and he says, give me thine heart. He wants a consecrated life. Devoted unto him. What a difference between that and the external. The requirement. Micah caused them to understand that they weren't in ignorance. They knew the terms of the covenant, so there was no need to speculate what the Lord desired. And so he brings that rationale to a close. He stops their argument. He says in verse 8, He has showed thee, O man. He has showed thee what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? We have come across another familiar verse when we looked at chapter 5, verse 2, about the birthplace of Christ. Here maybe is, we would say, a well-known, oft-quoted verse in the little book of Micah. Chapter 6, verse 8. And the requirement was simple. For what follows is not a play in words to give the impression that salvation can be obtained by works. That's not what it's to do with. You don't look at that verse and say, if I do good, if I do justly, and I love mercy and walk humbly, then I'll be right for heaven. No, it's nothing to do with that. Because God's salvation is by grace alone. But what it is, is a it is a, a, a continuation. It's a summary, if you like, of what is needed to preserve that covenant relationship, that consecrated walk that the Lord desires. Those whom he has redeemed, those whom he has favored, will express their gratitude by the way they live their lives. And it will please God. Not merely by their attendance on the Lord's day, how they live their lives the rest of the days of the week. Firstly, 
He has showed thee, O man, what the Lord doth require of thee but to do justly. That's a lifestyle that agrees and parallels with the standard of what God has shown is right and what God has shown is proper. And that is best seen in his own words and his own actions. For he is just. Deuteronomy chapter 32. The words of verse 4. Just gives you that little reminder. Deuteronomy 32 and 4 says, He is the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. The covenant-keeping God, in other words, is the model upon which the lives of God's people are to be lived. And the behaviour they ought to have, the one to the other, is to do justly. Secondly, is to love mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious. And so his people ought to be. For as we have experienced God's mercy, then it ought to be and should be shown unto others. 1 John 4 and 11. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. To love mercy. To show mercy. Thirdly, and to walk humbly with thy God. The third is a heavenward attitude of walking humbly with the Lord. Humility is that recognition of the God we worship. He's exalted and high we are on this earth. And it is humility that is etched in every part of life's journey. Humility when we get into the closet. Humility when we order our home. Humility in the workplace. Humility when we come to worship the Lord. Humility. It covers every aspect. It is a walk with our God with whom we travel a journey of life with. That means the Lord guides our every step. That means he is the lead. And we follow on. Charm to confess that voice divine. And it means our dependence is upon him and his gracious promise. What they were being condemned with was that their sacrifices were offered as a substitute for obedience. True worship is not on the outward men and women, a truth that many in this land again need to learn. True worship is what God taught, even at that well before that woman, that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. There was room for the people to admit their wrong here and to attend their ways and to amend them. But the closing verses speak of an inevitability of their punishment because of their persistence to disobey the Lord. And some of the offenses that they were guilty of are numbered. 
I'll just run through quickly verse 10. They used a scant measure to get their ill-gotten gains and treasures. Such practice was abominable before God. He expected the people to be upright. He expected the people to be honest beyond the sanctuary of worship. Our faith, men and women, ought to be reflected in every detail of life, including our business. You see, they were guilty of bringing the scant treasure. Verse 11, shall I count them pure with the wicked balances, with the bag of deceitful Weights, what they did was they got stones instead of weights, put them in the bag and whatever was to their advantage, either heavier or lighter, that's what they used instead of the proper measures. And God saw. The rich man, the royalty of Jerusalem, the next verse, had no respect for the lowly. They were prepared to break the law to further their own cause. And that had passed on to the ordinary people so that there was little respect in the city, either among the royalty or the business world, or even in ordinary living. There's lies and there's, their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore the Lord would match their behavior with his judgment. Verse 13. Therefore also will I make thee sick in smiting thee and making thee desolate because of thy sins. The following two verses are like a list of the curses. Remember how Israel way back half of them were to be on one mountain the other half and on the other mountain opposite. And on the one mountain there was the blessings that were spoken out and the other mountain there was the curses spoken out if they disobeyed the Lord. And that's a bit like those two verses that, that would happen if the people failed to live up to the covenant standards. Famine would come upon them not because of any natural disaster but because of the enemy. Their enemy would come in upon them. The enemies would take of the produce of the land so that they couldn't enjoy it for themselves. They would sow, but they wouldn't reap. The problem was they had followed the bad examples of the past. They hadn't learnt from their past mistakes. And you'll see it there in the words of verse 16. For the statues of Umri are kept and all the works of the house of Ahab. Umri was Ahab's father, a wicked king. Ahab just continued that. Ahab was one of the worst kings that Israel ever had. And Jezebel sitting beside him. And that was the pattern that they, these people followed, even in Micah's day. They followed the wrong counsel. They followed the wrong example. And the attitude of Ahab against Naboth just sums it up. Ahab, as the king, just looked down upon Naboth. He wanted his vineyard because it was next to the palace. Even though Naboth was not of a mind to sell it to him. And so he had him killed. And Jezebel has the blood of Naboth's hands on her skirts. Therefore God could not turn a blind eye. Sin had to be punished. They would be ruined. And as with the curses in Deuteronomy, there would be desolation and there would be ridicule. I take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Let me just read one verse, verse 37. And thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all nations, whether the Lord shall lead thee. That's just following the curses of the previous chapter that I've already referenced. 
And they were were reminded of what they would become. And so it is at the end of Micah chapter 6 that I should make thee a desolation. They would be that astonishment. They would be just a byword, a laughing stock. I just close with this. Our religion needs to be pertaining to ordinary practice and matters of life. Christianity is not just a theory. It's not just a book like the Book of Mormon or some other cult. Christianity is manifested in how we live. It's to be seen in practice. It's not just a cloak we put on on the Lord's day. How can we avoid the behavior of Judah as described in these closing verses? How can we avoid the attitude of putting our religion into a box for the Sabbath day and not taking it out until the next week comes around, but rather that our faith is that which impacts on other areas and every other area of our life? As Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 6, and I close with reading just a part of verse 6 and 7, he says, But as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord, and not to man. We serve the Lord doing the will of God from the heart. That's how we do it. And when we walk and when we worship and when we sit in the home and when we're in the business and when we're in the workplace, we do our service not unto men, but as unto the Lord. And if you do those things as unto the Lord, I'll tell you something, you'll be different from the world. And the world notice. The world will notice that you're not clocking off five minutes before your mantle. The world will notice that you're not taking an extra ten minutes at the lunch hour. Because your service is unto God. And you're doing the will of God from the heart. That's how we avoid where Israel was in Micah's day and the judgments that were inevitably coming upon them because they didn't repent they didn't obey the Lord they failed in their covenant promise and the court is dispelled the case is closed and they're rendered guilty the Lord versus the people. May we be those that Paul speaks about, even in those couple of verses that we've left with you in Ephesians chapter 6. May the Lord bless his word as we give a little summary of that chapter 6 of Micah.